0: We're in part three of a series, Glimpse. We've been journeying in the Gospel of John, specifically the first 14 verses. Next week in our Christmas Eve service, it is called Glimpse, but we're going to take a very different view and direction on that. And I said in week one that all it took was a glimpse to redirect the very course Of my life. In fact, I had two major glimpses that changed the direction of my life. The the first one is in the area of with my wife, and I got this glimpse of this beautiful blonde across the way, and I had to say, "Hey," and the rest is history. uh, And it was amazing. The second—that was when I was at age 19. The second was age 17, and honestly, as I think back on it, uh, I don't know that our story. At age 19, it would have worked out if I didn't have this glimpse at age 17 because my wife at the time, or soon-to-be wife at the time, was a passionate Jesus follower, and two years before that, I was an apathetic, anemic Jesus follower, and at 17, I got a glimpse of God as I was working a landscape job in a field, and I gave my life to Christ and made him the Lord of my life, and it changed my life, and many of you have had that experience, Many of you have had that glimpse of God experience. For some, you've forgotten about it, you've gotten so distant from it uh, that that the wonder and the magic, if you will, of the moment has left. But many of you have had that experience where, where you caught a glimpse of God and you used to go through the religious duty and all of a sudden it turned into this incredible life-giving relationship. And many of you have had the experience, perhaps, that you had no faith, that, that you pushed away or denied there was a God and all of a sudden you got a glimpse of God and now you have a vibrant faith. And here's what we said, is that when you get a glimpse of God, like when you actually see God, it changes your life, it redirects the very course of your life. In fact, every single Sunday I I pray this prayer. We just prayed it on this stage with the team before we gathered in here and I prayed this. That in this moment, my prayer, what would happen is whether you're new to church or you've been going to church your entire life, whether you're new to Jesus or you've been in a relationship with him for 20, 30 years, my prayer for you is that as you show up in this space, you would have a life-changing encounter with God. And when you get a glimpse of God, it changes your life. Well, how do you get a glimpse of God? And here's what we said. When you look at Jesus, you get a glimpse of God. When you look at Jesus, when you begin to look and take a, a, a gaze, or, or the word is behold, to like, to really look, to take in Jesus, you see God. It, it, Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just a great teacher. He, he was the God man. And see, In Jesus, we see God perfectly. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered this. As we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, and incarnation just literally means in flesh, God becoming flesh or humanity. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but perhaps you have. Why did God become a man? Like, couldn't he have come in another way? Like, every single Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, why? Like, why did he really become a man? Why did he join humanity? There is this pervasive belief in our culture that humanity is basically good. Uh, it's a belief system called secular humanism, uh, that humanity is basically good. We do not need God or religion to have a good and moral world. However, the very fabric or the standard, there is no basis for any moral knowledge anymore if you take away God or uh, uh, of the equation. But let's just take that line of argument, because I hear this quite a bit. Ah, yeah, no, man, humanity's basically good. You know, we're basically okay. Let's just think about this. If humanity is basically good, then one would expect the world we live in to be basically good. However, when we look at the world, it's not looking good at all, is it? When we take a look at our country... It's not looking good. When we take a look at our politicians, it's not looking like we're basically good, is it? When we take a look at the business leaders and the industry leaders, it's not looking so good, is it? When we understand that some of the greatest atrocities of humanity has happened in the last 50 years, it's not more education. It's not more self-realization. It's not looking good. In fact, perhaps one of the most honest statements of any religion, one of the most honest statements of any philosophical system is penned by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. He, He writes this. So freeing... In his assessment, for me, as I identify with exactly what he said. For I know that good itself, he writes, does not dwell in me. If humanity is basically good, wait a second. When I look on the inside of me, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that it is in my sinful nature, or literally the word is in my flesh, in my humanity. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do not do, for I do not do the good I want to do. Ever been there? I I have the desire to do good. I have the longing to do good but I do not do the good I want to do. In fact, that's going to be for some, many of our experiences when the new year comes around and we have a whole lot of good things we intended to do and one of them is lose weight, one of them is wake up earlier, one of them is even make the bed and you realize I do not even do the good, the simple good that I long to do. But then it goes deeper than that. But the evil I do not want to do. Those little lies. The internal thoughts and judgments that creep up, that that because I've I've grown to become sophisticated and I'm no longer a child, I can filter to an extent except when I'm with those that are closest and all of a sudden it just spills out. This, I keep doing. See, the problem for humanity, listen, the problem for humanity is we know what is good. We know what good is and we may even do good for a little while, but not one of us know how to be good. Not one of us know how to live in consistently, day in, day out, be good. And is this concept, by the way, it's this concept of goodness. And our inability to actually be good. That leads us to the significance of why God actually became a man and why the Christian story is really good news. If you got your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 14? And if you thought we started a little philosophical, we did. But if you ever read the beginning of John, you'll realize. It started very philosophical when he started with, in the beginning was the word. That this word, this logos, and we talked about it last week, that this logos to the Greek mindset was was the um, rational mind that ruled the universe. And to the Hebrews was the, was the actual self-expression of God himself. Now, now both in Greek and Hebrew thought, there, there was no uh, concept for God becoming man. To the Greeks or to the Stoics, uh, the rational mind, it, the matter was actually was not good or evil. And so there was this idea that it was to escape matter, that God would act upon matter but not become matter itself. And then to the Hebrews... To the Hebrews, God was so high and so holy and so utter, Other, they wouldn't even say his name that he revealed himself Yahweh. They wouldn't even utter it. That's where we actually get the word logos is in the Septuagint. They began to replace the name of God with the logos as the expression of God. And that God was so completely other. There's no way that God would ever become man. And then John explains something that would blow their mind. Not only that God became man, but why God became man. He says it this way. And the word, the logos, became flesh. That same word that the Apostle Paul used in my sinful nature, but in this sense is just bringing on humanity. The word became flesh, incarnate. that in Jesus is the undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. These four words would have floored the original audience. It's not an illusion of God. It's not a manifestation of God. This is God becoming fully human. Identifying, not just like, hey, I know what's going on. I am in what's going on. And then makes this statement, and made his dwelling among us. And now we begin to get to the explanation of why God became a man. Because this word especially to the the Hebrew audience, to the Jewish audience, would remind them of something significant in their history. This word would remind them of of a moment in time that they celebrate year in and year out. This is the word where it means to pitch your tents, to make your dwelling or make your home or make your abode. Uh, But it's also the same word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, when Israel was in bondage to Egypt, Moses comes and says, let my people go. They eventually get out. Yeah, that's how it worked. Uh, they eventually get out of bondage and they're on their way to the promised land. And God says this to them As they're on their journey, and he says, and let them make me a sanctuary or a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a portable sanctuary, it's a meeting place with God that's on the move. Here's why that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle was a sacred place where God would be with his people, it was a place. And so when they were wandering and walking through the wilderness, there was a tabernacle. And it is said of the the Israelites that that God would be a cloud by day and a fire by night. And he would lead them on. And whenever the cloud moved, the people would pack up. And there's about a million uh, Israelites journeying. Think about that. They're journeying to go to the promised land. And then... The author John says, remember that moment that we celebrate every single year that we remind ourselves of our ancestors who wandered in the desert and they didn't wander alone, but God tabernacled with them and he, he created a space where God would be in their midst and you would go to that. That tabernacle is now no longer a place but a person. In Exodus 33, we see, Uh, where Moses writes, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And so here's the thing. If you wanted to meet God, if you wanted to connect with God, he tabernacled there, which is amazing, but you had to go there. You had to move there. And just think about a million people. That's a lot of people. That's how many people are in San Jose, and they're on the move. And depending on where you're camped, the tabernacle could be really far away. And you had the journey there. In Moses, we get a glimpse of the type of relationship that God longs to have with every single one of us. Notice what it says about Moses. It says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend. Like God's desire, God's longing from the very beginning was to be with his people. And then let me just give you a side note because I love this line. But his young aide Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Do you know one of the ways that I look at awakening and when I know like, man, that was a successful Sunday? It's not, wow, we had so many people, and that's great. Man, the band was rocking, and that's great. Oh, I felt good, man. I was preaching it, and people were with me. Woo-hoo! That's good, too. I'm tired and winded after that. (laughs) You know what I look at? The linger factor. Because when you have been in the presence of God, you want to linger in the presence of God. It says of Joshua, Moses' aide, that is that Moses' meeting. He's there. He's watching this whole thing take place. And God met Moses in that place. And And Joshua just had to linger. Joshua lingered in the tent because he's like, this is where God is, and I don't want to leave this place. And when I look on Sunday and I see the linger factor, and I see people just hanging out, and they might have stuff to do. They might want to go on to different places, but they just can't help themselves. They want to linger. I'm like, God showed up this morning. God showed up because you don't want to leave the presence of God because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. And the Lord would speak to Moses' face. Face. And here's what John's saying when he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's saying that the presence of God is no longer found in a place, but in the very person of Jesus. The cloud by night, the fire, the uh, cloud by day and the fire by night is the person of Jesus. You no longer go to a place to meet God. You go to a person to be with God. And then John says something that his original audience would have immediately cued onto that brings a level of depth and richness to the text that we miss. Now, now when we read it at face value, we can get a lot out of it, but there is something so profound in in the history and the depth of what he's about to say, and it unpacks why God became a man. He writes this, Not only have we, you know, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, but we have seen, and say this out, his glory. Say it again. Glory. The glory of the one and only. And if you got your Bibles and you're okay with writing your Bibles, when you see one and only, and you'll see it again in John 3.16, write unique. That's what this word means. His unique, completely alone, no one like Son. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, glory is hard to define. In fact, if you begin to research it, and you'll see lots of different um, definitions for it, and you look at brilliance, greatness, majesty, beauty, Like we've seen his glory, and there's something about glory for us that that as humans, we're immediately drawn to it. The glory of a sunset, the glory of the perfect golf shot, which I do not have. The glory of a sacred moment with family. We're just drawn to it. We're made for it. But what is it? And to his original audience, this actually brings them back to Exodus 33. This one verse is so steeped in a moment in time that they would have told their kids over and over about this moment that Moses had with God. In Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses says to God, now show me your glory. Like it's great meeting face to face, but I want more. Like, would you show me your glory? I want to see all of you. I want to see God because I understand that when I get a glimpse of God, I'm forever changed, and, and like, I want more. Show me your glory, who you are. Reveal yourself fully to me. I don't want to miss a thing from you. Like, show me you, God. Now, notice. Notice what the Lord says. And the Lord said, I will cause all my, now say this out loud, goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson and theologian writes that the glory of God is supremely his goodness. Like when Moses cried out, God, show me your glory. I want you and more of you. And God says, I will allow and I will cause all of my goodness to come before you, to pass in front of you, that my glory is chiefly and supremely revealed in my goodness. Brings us back to our conversation, doesn't it, about goodness. Did you know that for there to be meaning in life, there needs to be goodness in your life? If there to be meaning to your life, there needs to be some level of goodness in your life. That's why when we take in a beautiful sunset, it's good so good. That's why in the deep cherished meaningful conversation of connection with someone it's good. It's so good. And in all those good moments gives us actually a glimpse of God and his goodness. Because it says that his glory fills the earth. That we get glimpses of His glory and His goodness as it fills the entire planet. It's on display. Now, now then, Moses, and this is a really fascinating story. I encourage you to go back and read this. First time Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And- get the Ten Commandments, hear from God. He comes back, and the people of Israel build a golden calf because he's up there for a long time. And They're like, he's not coming back, so let's build our own gods. He comes back. He's like, Aaron, dude, bro, you're supposed to be leading them well, and you weren't. Um, and now look at this. They, like, are returning to the gods of Egypt. He literally throws the stone tablets, breaks them in anger, and it was not a good scene. You can go read it for yourself. And then he's going back up to the mountain again. God's saying, hey, craft some more tablets. I'm going to give those commands back to you again. And so he's going up on Mount Sinai once again. And he says, in this moment, as you show up, you can't see my fullness of who I am. No one gets to see me and live because I'm so utterly pure and holy, righteous. My goodness on display, you cannot handle it. But I'll shield you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you. And as I passed by you, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, and the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. And then notice this, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand's. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, what he's saying here, and what we're gonna make this incredible connection, is the goodness which is God's glory, is full of love and faithfulness. Like that goodness, what the goodness revealed is this is this twin concept of it's the Hebrew word is hesed, his covenant love. You can even use the word grace. His undeserved favor on you, and it's this word met. It, it's his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. He's true. And here's what John says: We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Now, notice this: full of grace and truth abounding in love and faithfulness full of love and faithfulness full of grace and truth see that Moses moment that we've been telling our kids about that that incredible moment when when Moses got to see the fullness of God's glory revealed in his goodness on display full of grace and truth that Moses moment Peter had That Moses moment Peter had when he was walking by the shore and Jesus called him. That Moses moment, the woman caught in adultery had, saw the fullness of glory in the person of Jesus. That Moses moment the leper had when the Son of God reached out and touched him and he was healed. And we have seen his glory. Full of grace, full of love. Full of truth. Jesus defines reality, by the way. Um, another thing that I'm hearing quite a bit in our culture is this is my personal truth. That, that's bull crap. <laughs> it is. Either it's true or it's not. Whether you agree with it or not. And who defines it? And Jesus, you see two sides of the same coin, his grace, his mercy, his love, and his compassion. And you cannot be grace, mercy, love, and compassion without truth, righteousness, and justice. It does not work because evil is evil. And we look at an evil world, and it needs to be vanquished. And Jesus is full. Jesus is full. He is the revelation of grace and truth. Okay, so why did God become man? That was a great history lesson, Ryan. Thank you very much. Did you know that when God created humanity, he, he didn't say you're basically good. He said you're very good. Because everything God makes is good because his glory, he is the fullness of goodness. When sin entered the world, we chose to go our own way, to rebel from the goodness of God like a lo- young child who thinks they know better. And from that moment forward, we know good. We can even do good for a bit. But none of us can be good. And that is the point. That is the point of the incarnation. The goodness we desire... The goodness we were created for came in the person of Jesus. He was full, he was abounding, he was overflowing with grace and truth. See, Jesus came to be good on your behalf. Jesus came to be good on my behalf. See, the doctrine of the incarnation is so incredibly vital One scholar writes this, the doctrine of the humanity of Christ is equally important as the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Jesus had to be man if he was to represent fallen humanity. See, in Fully God, he brought infinite value to cover the brokenness, the shame, and the sins of the world. And as fully man, he became what we could never be. fully good on our behalf. This is why Christmas (laughs) is such a big deal. This is why Advent is such a big deal. And this is why for some, this is an aha moment for you. Because for some, you've been trying to good your way to God. And maybe you wouldn't use that word. Maybe you've just been trying to good your way through life. And Jesus came to be good for you. And you would probably identify the way I identify with Paul. Like, I know what good is, I desire what good is. In fact, I I get that I was created for it, but I can't be good. And it bothers me. And there's something missing. And it's the invitation at Christmas that God became man to be good on our behalf, that when we receive him into our life, we experience new life and can walk in goodness. And for some, you are... (sighs) You get that. But the part that's been really hard for you is you've been trying to be good. Maybe you grew up in the church. I gotta be good. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't do, don't go with girls who do. Whatever your code of good is. You know what's interesting about a code of good? It defines what good is, but it almost does you no good. Because like Paul... We get back to, I know the good. I desire the good. I just can't do the good. Do you know that the New Testament actually tells us, I'm going to figure out how to say this better maybe next service. Like, like stop trying to be good. And here's why. I'm going to explain it because if I left you there, you'd be like, what? What? That whole idea of tabernacle, did, did you know that, that that shifted? Jesus rose again from the grave. He said, it's better that I go because I'm going to send my spirit. And then the Apostle Paul says this, don't you know that your body is a, and anybody know what the next word is? Temple. Temple is a tabernacle. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You no longer have to go to a place. You call upon a person, and God fills you and brings new life in you. And so no longer are you trying to do good. You simply run to the one who is good, and in doing that, you'll experience new life. You'll actually be good. You know those areas that you've always wanted to change? You know those areas, those things that you've, you've longed for, you've prayed for, and, and it just keeps coming back? Did you know? He's not like, work harder. One day you'll make it. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit. What is fruit? It's the healthy production of a tree. The, the result The fruit or the result of a life yielded to the Spirit of God. The fruit or the result of one who says, I'm going to allow the Spirit of God because I'm a temple of the Spirit of God. I'm a tabernacle and the Spirit of God lives in me. And so no longer do I live for myself. I live for God who bought me and paid for me. And so I'm yielding my life fully to him. And when I yield my life fully to him, the fruit of that is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, help me out. What's the next one? Oh goodness sakes. I could do those, I could do those all day long. uh, Faithfulness, self-control. See the call for is not, hey, be more loving, be more joyful, be more kind, be more good. says you're a tabernacle you're a temple yield your life to the spirit of god and when you do that you'll be more loving you'll be more kind you'll be more good jesus thanks for this morning thank you for your word and for some this morning You've been trying to good your way through life. And today you need to come to the one who's good and give your life to him. It's exhausting, isn't it? And you know it's good and you've tried to do it. And sometimes you've succeeded, but there's the times where you just, you know you can't be good. And so today in this moment, you put your faith, you put your trust in Jesus. And you say, Jesus, I need you. You came to be good on my behalf. I believe you're more than a good man. You were the God-man. Would you come into my life and make me new? And at that moment, that confession, you enter into new life. The Spirit of God comes inside of you, and you are a new creation, a tabernacle, a temple. And for others in this moment, you... uh, it's a yielding moment isn't it you've given your life to Christ but that that yielding to the spirit that realizing you don't have to go to a place god has deposited his spirit in you to live out a brand new life and where you go holy spirit i yield to you today i yield to you today i i'm going to let you call the shots I want to walk in step with you. Would you fill me afresh? And the promise of God is in this moment he will.